I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Jaruri Chong. Jaruri Chong-Cook is a science writer and a media relations specialist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She writes stories about and coordinates news coming out of the lab's outer solar system missions. And she also worked to get the latest images out on the web and TV with explanations about what the world was seeing as the Curiosity rover landed on Mars. Previously, she was a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times. Please give a warm welcome to Jari Chung-Cook. Thanks, everybody. Um, thanks for coming. I'm glad you guys are interested in this question of what do we lose if we don't go to space? So we've got three great panelists uh, for you guys tonight. Um, so I'm just going to introduce them uh, and then sort of set the table, and then we'll get into a conversation with them. So uh, on my left here is Lou Friedman. Um, he's Executive Director Emeritus and Secretary Treasurer of the Planetary Society, which he helped co-found. He worked for a decade at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where I also work, uh, where he was involved in planning deep space missions, as well as the ABCO Space Systems Division, where he worked on both civilian and military space programs. Next to him is Bobek. Ferdosi, also known as NASA Mohawk Guy. You guys might recognize him. <laughs> He's a systems engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and a flight director for the Mars Science Laboratory Project, which landed the Curiosity rover on Mars. Um, as flight director, he has responsibility for checking the commands that go up to Curiosity every day and making sure the rover is okay before proceeding to the next step. He also gets to pick the wake-up song every morning that the rover wakes up to. <laughs> Next to him is John Vilia, uh, Vice President of Strategy, Innovation, and Growth at Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne, where he leads the company's efforts on developing future programs in power, propulsion, and op optimization projects or products. Over 28 years at Rocketdyne, he has led projects ranging from the J2X Earth Departure Stage Engine Program for NASA Space Launch System to Space Shuttle Main Engine Technology. So... Um, Great. <laughs> Thanks for coming, guys. Um, okay, so I just wanted to set the stage a little bit and talk about how America's adventures in space started right here in Southern California. The country's first satellite in space, Explorer 1, launched on January 31st, 1958, was built at Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The aerospace industry boomed here, and soon rocket you know, test rocket firings reverberated through local backyards. Um, and then JPL became part of this new thing called NASA. Um, and today NASA has more than 70 missions flying in space, um, measuring greenhouse gases in Earth's atmosphere, mapping Mercury, um, exploring the outer reaches of our solar system, and searching for black holes in the Milky Way galaxy and beyond. Um, this past year has been especially busy. Um, one highlight was August 5th. Uh, when NASA's Curiosity rover plunged through the Martian atmosphere in seven minutes of terror. I'm not sure if you guys have seen the video, but you can look it up online. <laughs> and put its wheels down on the red planet, um, guided, of course, by engineers at JPL. Um, you know, SpaceX, based in Hawthorne, California, also started resupplying cargo to the International Space Station. And Rocketdyne, based in Canoga Park, um, has been developing the engines for the biggest rocket ever built, or the biggest, yeah, the biggest rocket ever built called the Space Launch System, and that's the next generation heavy lift rocket. Um, and of course, Planetary Society has been busy too, since space has been busy. Um, Lou, in particular, has been working on the Light Sail project, which is um, this, he was explaining it to me earlier, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's this little nano satellite that um, sails from, uh, pushed by the pressure of sunlight. 
so that sounds like a cool thing. But um, uh, you know, but it's also been a time of belt tightening and reevaluation. So there's a debate about what should we do next in space? What should Southern California and America's ambitions for space be? So um, since Lou's organization sort of advocates for planetary exploration, um, why don't you take the first crack at our question? What do we lose if we don't go to space? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. I was preparing for this uh, this morning, and I got on Facebook. That's where I prepare for everything. And, uh, <laughs> and this picture popped up on, on somebody's Facebook page saying, nine things NASA has helped bring us. And I was struck by this because I thought, oh, here, I got the whole speech ready for tonight. <laughs> Clear braces. <laughs> UV sunglasses. Uh, hand, uh, hang gliders. I, I don't think they got it right. <laughs> what, to me, what NASA's brought us really can be is Mercury, Venus, Earth, Earth, and I'll come back to that, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Those are the nine things that should have been in this, this picture. <laughs> the, it changed all of our view, and if it did nothing else but that, it would be, it would be fantastic enough just to change the view. But it, of course, it's much deeper than that. It's changed our understanding. Uh, and, it, and it changed it not just in the esoteric way of understanding knowledge. I mean, you know, what was the value of, of Copernicus finding out that the Earth went around the sun? It doesn't make any difference to my life whether the sun goes around the Earth or the Earth goes around the sun. But it did change our view and it's changed everything we've done since then in, in so many ways. But our, our exploration of the planets has, has been like that too. Uh, when I was a kid, planets were little specks of light. They had, that was all they were. And now we know them as the center of many solar systems in their own light. In the case of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, we know them as worlds with interesting climates and activity on them, in the case of Mars and Venus. And we've learned much about our own planet, both by observing our own planet and also going to the other planets and learning uh, all the forces that affect our life. And so in a sense, everything that has happened, I think, uh, in terms of our understanding about our environment, about our ability to uh, uh, prepare for the future, about our ability to understand the forces that are around us, uh, really is what we would lose if we didn't have uh, the kinds of things that NASA does. Well, in some of our conversations before getting up here on stage, you pointed out to one particular example of Venus and Venus's atmosphere. I mean, what was the point of, what did we learn by going to Venus? Yeah, I mean, Venus is, is a really hostile place. I mean, we, I mean it's, it's worse than hell. It's, it's got a, <laughs> it's, it's got a uh, uh, temperature on the surface in excess of 500 degrees. It's got a pressure. Uh, down there, which is like being at the bottom of the deepest oceans on Earth. Uh, uh, you can't see through this very thick atmosphere. Uh, it, it's, it's a very hostile place, much more hostile than we might have otherwise expected it to be if we were just thinking about the fact that it's uh, uh, maybe 30% closer to the sun than we are and, 
and uh, therefore should be warmer. But why did? Why is it so different in Earth? It's the same size. It's the. It it, it has much of the same early history. Uh, how did it go so so differently? And what we began to learn as we measured these really high pressures and very high uh, temperatures on Venus. Uh, was about the time we started understanding the theoretical models of the greenhouse effect. And Venus doesn't have just a greenhouse effect, it has a runaway greenhouse effect. And what we, what we saw in the Venus atmosphere began to resonate with what we saw in the Earth's atmosphere. The excess carbon dioxide, the buildup of aerosols, uh, and that sort of led to all of the things we talk about today in, in the theory of climate change. Now, one can oversimplify this and say, well, is Earth going to become like Venus? Or is Earth going to become like Mars and have its water disappear and these things? We don't know. We do know these effects go on. And by gaining this understanding, uh, and we wouldn't, wouldn't have done that just by, you, you can always in, go backwards in time and say, oh, well, we should have just measured that on Earth. But our understanding, I keep coming back to the point, uh, there's a beautiful quote about uh, going to other worlds and seeing things it isn't just about new landscapes, it's about having a new understanding of, of what we see out there. I've butchered a quote by Marcel Proust, which you can look up on the internet when you get home, but, but it's basically that. We don't just see landscapes, we understand what's going on there. Right. Okay, well, maybe we could move on to, I guess, another example, the, the Curiosity landing. Um, so, you know, I think one, you know, we're asking this question about what do we lose if we don't go to space, but there's also the flip side of that question, which is, you know, what do we gain when we go to space? And so I wanted um, Bobek to just talk a little bit about, I guess, the, the, the way that we landed on Mars. Um, I mean, I think one thing that, that really captured people's attention was just the craziness of this sky crane thing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that engineering idea came to be and like really how crazy it is? <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, sky crane is conceptually, maybe at first glance, not the most obvious way to land something on a different planet. Uh, but it turns out actually from a, you know, people who have a kind of physics background, you might realize that it's just a pendulum. And pendulums are actually pretty easy to model and to understand. They're analytical as opposed to experimental. And uh, the previous generation was using airbags. So we're kind of bouncing around. You actually empirically test each of those. Uh, whereas with uh, Skycrane, it was actually something we could model and we could run simulations on for the first time. And I think that's kind of one of the things that's trending in, in our field in general is that as these systems become more and more complex, we can't just rely on traditional tests. Testing is very expensive, uh, whereas simulation is uh, maybe more of the future. I know that in, uh, as aircraft systems grow, they've been using more and more simulation. Early uh, design even just uses these kind of blocks that they can assemble virtually in computer systems. Uh, so I think that's kind of where we're headed in terms of the future of, of our industry. And uh, this was just one of the first missions to sort of take advantage or more advantage of that. So you built this crazy way to land the rover on Mars. What, so what are the science goals of, of uh, Curiosity? I mean, why did we go to Mars and why is it that we had to go to Mars instead of trying to do it here on Earth? Yeah, I think there's two parts to that uh, question. I mean, Mars, of course, itself is so interesting because it is, again, in some ways like Venus, it's so much like Earth. Uh, Mass-wise, it's really not that different, um, you know, distance from the sun. It actually gets kind of warm during the daytime in the summer. Uh, there's definitely a you know, history of water that we determined with the last missions. Uh, so it's so much like Earth that at the same time it's not like Earth. And, and you know, we can observe 
um, other planets out there that have water in their atmospheres, but Mars is just kind of like the closest thing. It's, in some ways, it's the mirror to Earth. And so we go there not just to, to look at Mars and understand why Mars is Mars, but also to understand why, what makes us so unique on Earth. Like what, what helped Earth become Earth, but yet Mars, which is so similar, uh, just went in a different direction. And um, I think that's why we have to go there, because if you just stay on Earth, you kind of only have one data point. And looking at just one data point the whole time doesn't necessarily give you a context for why that, that is so unique or why it's so special. Okay, well, um, can I add yeah. This, the other special aspect of Mars, it's the only place, in my view, that we can actually see ourselves going and, and maybe even settling. Yeah. Uh, because it, it's got an accessible atmosphere and water that we can modify in some way. And so for that reason, it's just almost compelling to find out more about it, what you're doing. Yeah. yeah, well, one of the things that I've also learned about Curiosity is that um, some of the technology on board has been adapted to use on Earth. So we're not just doing science to learn about Earth, but there's things that we can do because we had to build this thing um, on Earth. So can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, in general, I think, you know, uh, Lee was hinting at it, we have a history of kind of commercializing some of the technologies from our missions. Uh, but, and Curiosity is no exception. We have this chemical mineralogy instrument on board, which basically shrunk down these you know, lab-sized instruments into something we could fit inside the belly of a rover. And then, in return, you know, we were able to make it into sort of a thing that you could carry on on Earth in such in the size of like a small briefcase. And that allows us to, uh, here on Earth, to examine uh, chemicals um, and chemical composition of things. So uh, some of the uses that you know, it might uh, be useful for is quick determination of uh, drug samples, not necessarily recreational drugs, but just in general. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, one of the things that they're looking at is for a non-invasive way of evaluating historical artifacts. Uh, it could be you know, uh, uh, tombs in Egypt, uh, or it could be old paintings and things like that. And so it's a way for us to look at these things without actually um, doing any damage to them or to actually have to, you know, uh, remove some of the sample to, to analyze it. Yeah, so John actually testified before Congress uh, about some of the Earth-based applications of um, the rocket research that Rocketdyne has been doing. And so one thing that I learned in kind of preparing for this is that jet skis would not be around <laughs> if Rocketdyne had not <laughs> learned how to make some rockets. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the ways that Rocketdyne has adapted, you know, um, some of the technologies for Earth? Sure, I mean, one of the things that's unique about a rocket engine, it's a lot of energy in a really small space. You know, a space shuttle main engine's about the size of a 737 engine, but it puts out the power of about seven Hoover dams. Uh, the pump, the fuel pump itself, uh, requires about 70,000 horsepower just to move the fuel into the chamber. So there's just a lot of energy in a small space, and the engineering that takes to do that is, is kind of unique. So um, the pumping aspect, for instance, the jet skis were based on what it took to pump liquid oxygen. However, those were adapted into a nice compact pump, which we sold to Kawasaki Heavy Industries. So you know, <laughs> I guess we get a plug money for that or something. But uh, you know, we're also working on other things. We have a solar power plant that's going up right now where there's um, about 10,000 mirrors that focus the heat of about 1,000 suns on, into this one receiver panel at the center of this thing. And, um, you know, the, what it takes to cool the chamber on our rockets is very similar to the technology that it takes to keep this thing from melting year after year of producing power. You know, the, um, you know the, the stuff that comes out of a rocket engine, the space shuttle's main engine, is hotter than the boiling temperature of iron. So, you know, you've got to cool that thing. If your cooling gets lost, you'll lose the rocket engine in a nanosecond. It goes away very quickly. It'll just evaporate on you. 
So all the cooling technology is something that we're applying into the energy market. We're also getting into coal gasification, which is a clean coal. So there's a whole bunch of things that we can get into where you're really trying to do a, put a lot of energy in a small space. And it's all enabled by what we learned by building rocket engines. Um, well, I also learned that um, you actually grew up with aerospace in your backyard. So I, I guess, what do you remember of you know, aerospace culture in, in the mid-50s. I mean, how mid much... ouch. Well, I'm sorry, the mid-century. That's a round number. Um, so what do you remember about that time and how much it sort of infused the culture of Southern California? It was the mid-60s, thank you very okay, much. Okay, sorry. <laughs> but My mistake. Were, uh, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't out here. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I grew I'm up in the San Fernando Valley, yeah. for, for sure. And, um, you know, when I was a kid in the schoolyard, I was actually hearing them test the rocket engines up at Santa Susana Field Lab. And it was really weird. You're sitting in the playground, and all of a sudden the sound of an earthquake happens. You know, just this long rumble keeps going. And you ask the teacher, what is that? Oh, actually, it's a rocket engine. It's like, well, what's a rocket engine? It's, it makes thrust for space. And they test them <laughs> up there in the hill. And it's kind of like, that's the coolest job ever. <laughs> so my first job out of college was a test engineer at Santa Susana. And my first day on the job, we tested a space shuttle main engine. I was like, oh, this, I get paid for this. This is awesome. Yeah. Well, um, uh, when Northrop Grumman last year announced that it was going to move its headquarters out of L.A., there was a group of historians writing about it, and they sort of talked about it as the end of the aerospace century, and they wrote, Southern California as we know it would not exist without aerospace. What do you think about that statement? Well, I mean, it was one, you know, there's two things that moved in Southern California because of largely the nice weather and the open spaces. There's the film industry, because we had nice light, you can film all the time, and that kind of caught on. But the aerospace industry also came out here, you know, between Northrop, Douglas, Rockwell, or at the time it was North American, um, you know, they were all pioneers, and they were and Lockheed Brothers, and you know, they were all creating the aerospace industry. Hughes, you know, they were, they were all here. This was the hub. And when I was growing up, it was amazing how many people worked in aerospace. Now there's been a migration away because there's been a strong political push to pull folks into other markets. You know, Texas makes a big play, Alabama makes a big play, and a lot of folks are trying to move the industry out of here. A lot of people move their headquarters near Washington D.C. so that they're VPs don't have to fly very far so when they want to go talk to the lawmakers. So um, we're seeing a migration out of here, but, the, but there's so much left behind here still that, um, you know, Boeing, Northrop, um, JPL, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, they're all here. Well, I'm actually struck, I think, one of the points that you make, right, which is kind of interesting, is there was this whole infusion of both Hollywood and, uh, and aerospace, and I think that actually impacted our whole culture for a period. I mean, you can look around you, and there are cars here that are clearly modeled after some of the rockets that you know, were, were part of that history. And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting in Southern California is that there was this sort of you know, interaction where it sort of fed the rest of the country also a sort of a space, spaceship future and culture. Yeah, it was neat back in the 60s when Werner von Braun used to visit Rocketdyne. He'd go to Rocketdyne in the morning, and then in the afternoon he would go to Disney Studios and hang out with Walt Disney and have dinner with them. Because <laughs> his big thing was early to bed, early to rise, work like hell, and advertise. You know, so he really wanted people to know the stuff they were doing. So he was big. You know, so they really have coexisted a long time. And you know, NASA. I mean, um, California still has three NASA centers, and the other launch site besides Cape Canaveral, the one at Vandenberg. So it's, it's still a major player uh, with, uh, with uh, both NASA and with, uh, uh, and with launches. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the open spaces definitely played a part. I mean, with the founding of JPL, it was because they were a whole bunch of Caltech grad students, and they were firing off these rockets at Caltech, and they sort of broke too many windows. <laughs> they said, why don't you go play in the Arroyo? <laughs> and that's how JPL got started. So, um, well, since you sort of mentioned this kind of industry side of this, I mean, let, let's, I guess, talk about jobs. I mean, how many jobs right now do you think in Southern California, at Rocket Diner, or the other aerospace industries. I mean, how much of that is dependent upon space exploration? Well, at this point, it's, it's still thousands of jobs, which is good, and you know, it, in a, it used to be hundreds of thousands of jobs, okay? So it's way down, but it's still thousands of jobs. But it's not just the direct jobs, it's also the subcontractor basis. If you look at all the people we buy our stuff from, you know, the majority is in Southern California. I'd say about, for us, it's about 60% of our subcontractors are in California. And so, you know, you start looking at all the jobs that are indirect, it, it probably does get back up into tens of thousands. And it's suffered a lot, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And what I see is a little bit of brain drain. A lot of folks are going into other industries because they're not so sure what the future holds. Now, the flip side is when we start a new project, when we make a job offer for someone out of college, we get them. I mean, our acceptance rate is very high because people are still taken by the, the product, the industry. It's just such a, you know, if you're a, if you're a nerd coming out of college, like I'll profess I was at one point, <laughs> uh, you know, you just can't say no to the offer. It's just fantastic. Well, I know that, that one thing that you guys are working on is this sort of next generation heavy lift rocket. So what's going on with that project? I mean, why is it important to kind of build this next generation rocket? Well, we were having that debate in the green room is that, you know, it kind of comes down to you have two choices if you want to make a complex mission into deep space. Because it's going to take a lot of mass, a lot of space. It's going to be a very complex device. One option is that you can use existing rockets, which are smaller, and then build this up incrementally in orbit. And then when it's finally put together, send it off to do its mission. Uh, the space station was really a good example of something we built up incrementally. Now, it took years. There were a lot of setbacks. It took a lot of time to put it together. The question is, is that really a practical way to do a mission that, you know, a lot of times, like the RTGs on uh, Curiosity, they're degrading the second you load them, right? And so, you know, time could be of the essence, and with weather delays of launches, this buildup becomes more challenging. With a heavy lift, you can do a very significant exploration mission in one or two launches. And yeah, it's an expensive thing to do. It's expensive to get there, but once you have it, it opens up the door for the mission designers who can just they can go crazy, and that's kind of what that's trying to do. A lot of debate both sides. And, and we did have that debate, but one thing we agreed upon in, in that discussion was we've been caught in this, this situation where uh, a human mission to Mars is huge. It, it is just a huge undertaking. Not only all the mass that you have to launch in order to do it, but the whole entry descent of a, of a uh, human mission, I think they have to go down to about one meter above the surface and skim out before they can slow down enough or something. It's just an enormous job to, to undertake a, a human mission to Mars. And one of the arguments about, well, we can't do it now because we don't have a big enough rocket. We don't have the big enough systems. And so, uh, okay, let's defer the decision another 10 years and wait until we get the big enough systems. Well, then the reverse is true, too. We don't do the big uh, rocket because we don't have the mission for it. And we've been caught in this conundrum politically uh, for uh, several decades, and we're caught in it right now. 
which is we don't have a commitment to the mission and we don't have a commitment to the technology and each is waiting on the other. Uh, the new thing that's going on, and maybe it'll work, is this approach that was introduced in the, uh, in the Obama administration early on, which is this flexible path, building up the capabilities step by step. It's not perfect. I mean, it's not what any of us space geeks exactly want in terms of uh, making a clear decision of where to go, but it is building up the capability to send humans for the first time beyond the moon, finally, after all of these years, into the solar system. And once we get into the solar system, I maintain uh, our destination will be very clear in front of us. It will be Mars. Well, if you guys had to sort of pick one destination or, or one thing to investigate in space, you know, going forward in the future, I mean, what would that project be? I mean, what do you think is important to, to do next that's on the drawing board? Well, I, I already answered it. I said Mars. Mars is compelling because of the human aspect of it, because of the question of life. I mean, the missions in terms of being a mission designer, as I used to be, or in terms of actually planning out these things, every one of them is fantastic with the science results you can get from, say, the Jupiter system or even the Uranus system, or, or designing a mission that can get out there in a reasonable amount of times. We have a spacecraft going out uh, to uh, Pluto and the Kuiper Belt objects now, uh, taking a long time to get there, but it's, it's doing a lot of interesting things. There's a lot to be done, but I think when it comes down to the thing that compels us, uh, why are we doing these things in space at all, to come back to the question of the evening, is we aren't trying to understand ourselves. We're trying to understand the future of life, where it's going, where it's come from, and that, that ultimately centers on Mars. That's my answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Mars. I have a personal bias towards it. Um, <laughs> but I think the other thing for me is Europa. The, you know, this amazing icy moon of Jupiter has what's very likely a liquid ocean underneath it. Uh, you know, we know that subglacial lakes in, in, you know, in our planet support life. And I think it's, there's a very compelling argument to be made for landing there. Of course, there's a lot of engineering challenges, which is what I live for. Um, so I think that'll be, I think that's another exciting place. And I think it kind of does hark back to the same question though, which is, you know, what, what is life and in where, where, where do we fit into that? What is the context for us uh, as a species and, and as a planet? Yeah, and I think, it's a, I think it's a progression. I mean, I, I, you really have to say, before you go to Mars, where are you gonna test your stuff? Now I'm a backpacker and when I buy a tent, I, I don't pitch my tent for the first time when I'm a day into the backcountry. That seems like a bad idea, pitch it in my backyard. And so when you're talking about going to Mars or the moons of Mars, you might want to pitch your tent on the moon, which is in our backyard, and that's days away. And then, you know, once you've tested that, you may not want to build a base there, but then now start carrying the mission further. The moons of Mars sound like next for humans. Then Mars itself, which is a healthy gravity well. But Europa is the one that has my imagination. I mean, <laughs> think about it. This is a moon that has twice the water of Earth it's on the, it goes around Jupiter, and so we know that the Jupiter's moons have volcanic cores to them. So now you have a volcanic core and water. Now one of the few places on Earth where you have unique indigenous life forms are near the volcanic vents on the bottom of the ocean. Life is developed there in a completely unique species, and if I had to bet where there's life in this, I would, I would say Europa is where I'd place my money. I mean, that's, it's got all the ingredients don't you have to find out? But you know, it's, it's, listening to it's absolutely amazing. We're kind of technical specialists and we've heard these discussions and 
So I just nod my head while you talk. You're right, absolutely. But it's so incredible. Life on a moon of an outer planet. I can tell you when we were going to school, that was an impossible idea. And it's still as hard to get my head around this idea that way out there and, you know, five times the distance uh, in the solar system from where the Earth is, where the sun itself is a speck, where Jupiter has this hostile radiation environment, where all these crazy objects are swirling around the thing, that we're actually talking about life on another planet. And what it means is it's not just Europa. There's crazy things going on in the moons of Saturn and Enceladus. There's crazy things going on in extrasolar planets, the whole hundreds of planets now that have been discovered around other stars that we learn have this diversity of, uh, of uh, different processes that are going on. Some of them are, are in impossible regions where we can't imagine life, but that's what we used to think about the outer planet uh, moons as well. But if you had so, to bet, which would you pick? If I had to bet where, where, where you might find life. Besides Earth? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Europa's still a lot for me to swallow. I mean, I, I know all the astrobiology, but I also know the radiation, and I know... You Water's know, a really it, good absorber. ...where it comes from. <laughs> but it comes from out there. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, I'd, I'd bet. You know, I mean, it, it's good, but... I'm not going to give up my Mars bias. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you heard it here first. These are the bets later. Um, okay, well, I remember one other thing. I mean, as you're talking about this, it really seems like um, going into space kind of accelerates a lot of our knowledge about Earth. And um, one thing you were talking about earlier was that when you were in school, um, nobody really had any theories about what killed the dinosaurs. And then you were saying, well, you know, by going to space, we, we sort of figured out a likely answer. Can you talk a little bit more about yeah, that? That was another bizarre kind of thing. The idea, I mean, you get thrown out of class for suggesting that there was extraterrestrial causes that affected the evolution of life on Earth. I mean, that, that's pseudoscience, or it was. And now we piece together not just by things we've learned here on Earth, which of course is very important, you have to go out and do the field work to, and all the investigation of what has happened 65 million years ago or in Earth's geologic history, but by observing the moon. By seeing all those craters on the moon, we began to understand the things that impacted the moon obviously impacted Earth, and it's the same region of the solar system. So all those impacts happened here. What was their effect on this planet? Well, as soon as you ask that question, you begin to start piecing together the story of uh, uh, impacts uh, causing uh, global catastrophes in the environment and in the, uh, and in the raising of uh, changing the atmosphere, uh, which led to the extinction of species, not just with the dinosaurs, but even in earlier extinctions. Uh, and of course, we wonder about the future. Those asteroids are still out there. There's going to be impacts in the future. Most of them happen uh, at the size that they're so small that we don't they don't have any measurable impact on Earth, but there's, there's, statistically it's going to happen again in the future. These are things we want to know about. And so again, it was another whole area of understanding that we couldn't have, have imagined without the advent of the space age, and now we're kind of uh, making that part of our daily learning, daily understanding. Yeah, well, one other aspect of, um, I guess, the challenge of getting to space seems to me just the, the sort of fascination of 
doing something difficult. So, you know, for the Mars team, um, for the Curiosity team, you know, th there became this mantra that was a Teddy Roosevelt quote that, that says, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those timid spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. Um, Bobak, why, why did you guys choose that <laughs> as your kind of motto? We shortened it to Dare Mighty yeah. Things. <laughs> right. We didn't like quote that every time we were talking to each other. Yeah. I can't remember all God, that. You make me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mighty thing and I'm just sitting here talking. Uh, I think for all of us, I mean, it, every, everyone on that project, right? And it's, it's years of our lives that we put into that. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been there without that sort of sense of exploration and what it means to sort of even at some level be a human being and want to like push the boundaries uh, to, to, you know, the same reason in some ways that we go to the top of Mount Everest and everything else. It's just because it's there and there's a challenge there. Um, you know, I'm not a, I don't have a science background and I, I mean, I love the science and actually I think there's all this really cool science that's coming out and I'm getting more and more excited about it. But as an engineer, it was just like, well, why, you know, what makes this so difficult and how can I be a part of something that certainly I couldn't do on my own. Um, you know, we estimated it takes 5,000 man years to build a Curiosity rover. So that I mean, that would just mean me working for the next 5,000 years of my life and I would still build <laughs> one Curiosity. Um, so in that sense, and I, and I, and I you know, the, the, the moment we landed, of course, and it became so much more than that, it wasn't just about the fact that we landed a rover on Mars, but it was also about the you know, the friendships and all the hard work and everything else. And, and that all came together uh, in that moment. And I, you know, I'm excited that there are people who watched that and were, you know, excited about space. And I think there's going to be a whole generation of people who are like, yeah, that's the reason I'm here today. And not just for space, but just in engineering and sciences and all the other fields that I think are really important today. Um, space may be kind of a, a beacon in some ways that it's, it's very inspirational, but there's so many challenges that we have. Uh, that require those kinds of, of, of you know, minds that, uh, that hopefully we can inspire. You know, it's uh, uh, important to remember what, what he just said, because I've been also uh, a part of Mars Polar Lander, a mission that failed, and Mars 96, a Russian mission that failed. I had things on those spacecraft. I was there in mission operations when the Polar Lander failed. I was there at the launch of Mars 96 when it failed. Uh, so you take part in failures of missions as well. But all the things he said uh, about the successes and, and the effort that goes into them also apply to those missions that failed and that we build upon as we carried out the next missions. The history of the Mars program, the history of the rocket program, of course, is, is replete with, with failures. Uh, not, and uh, if they hadn't happened, uh, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing now, which is going pretty well for both of you. Well, what is it that we learn from failures? I mean, it, it sounds like you guys are saying that even if we do these missions and they don't work out, that there are still things that we could learn from them. I mean, what is it that we learn from, I guess, the, uh, the, the challenge of even trying to do these things? Well, each failure certainly resulted in a, a lot of scrutiny and, and examination of the processes that go on and there's always a there's a there's always comes down to a somebody finding a cause for failure a switch in a landing system or or some navigation error in uh, in in spacecraft or or some uh, uh, impurity in a rocket in a, in a fuel flow or something like that but it's it's not those things that we only learn we, we correct those things 
but it's, it's not that you're going to eliminate all those things. You're going to have to have systems, and this is what systems engineering is, you're going to have to have processes in place that allow you to, to work with the failures or overcome them in the course of developing the mission. And that's what's gone on, and I think we've gotten better and better at it. JPL has had a remarkable string of successes in the past uh, uh, few years with their missions. Uh, launch vehicle industry now uh, routinely does a great job uh, with the one outstandingly bad example of that climate observer that, uh, that we lost a couple of years ago. But in general, uh, we're doing really very, very uh, much better and, uh, and you hope that uh, each time you improve upon the processes. But make no mistake about it, failures are not something only of the past. They will happen in the future. They have to when you're trying the kinds of things that are going on. Well, to bring this down to kind of a, a personal level, I guess I'm wondering why each of you guys decided that it was important to devote your whole lives to, to space exploration. I mean, John, you mentioned that you started at Rocketdyne right out of school and you're still there. I mean, why did you think it was important to, to do this? Well, well you know, it's, it's largely a matter of unfinished business. You know, we still have a lot of places to go. Uh, we still need to get to Mars more quickly. You know, I, before I retire, I see us working on nuclear propulsion you know, nuclear thermal propulsion where we actually can get to Mars in a matter of a month. You know, I see us working on a lot of the solar electric propulsion which can power stuff to the outer edges of the solar system, nuclear, nuclear electric propulsion. There's just so much yet to be done that, um, you know, I, I can't imagine hanging it up and, you know, I, I also can't imagine going into packaging mayonnaise or something like that. <laughs> I'm sure it's all very important, but, uh, you know, once you've tasted the, going to work every day going, oh, you know, I'm not really smart enough to do this job, but they keep asking <laughs> me back. How can you say no to that? Yeah. What about you, Bob? I think for me, it's, it's entirely selfish reasons that I do this. I mean, I, I love the work I do. I love the people that I get to work with every day. Um, I often feel like the stupidest person in the room, and uh, I think that's awesome because I'm just like, I'm so inspired to work harder. Uh, but also, I just, I don't know, there's that sense in me, uh, you know, from even from childhood, like asking questions, wanting to learn more. And I think that's one of the cool things about what we do is there is always more to be le learned. There's always more to understand. And, uh, you know, no matter what, every day I go and I feel like I learn something kind of awesome at work. And uh, so it's, it is a little bit selfish, but I, I kind of I keep coming back for more because I just enjoy it so much. How about you, Lou? Well, getting into the space business for me was an easy decision because I was there at the beginning of the space age uh, as a student, and uh, uh, and the whole and this was the cutting edge. I mean, this was the new new thing, and it was and it was uh, it was irresistible as a lure in that regard. Uh, but I'll pick up on on what both John said, which is we're always there's so much more. Uh, just when you think, oh gosh, we've done all the planets, then you get all these moons. And then you say, well, now we've done the solar system and now we're doing these exoplanet discoveries. And I'm beginning to do some of my own work now on the notion of interstellar precursors, little spacecraft that can go shooting out of the solar system at 20 or 30 AU per year and begin to take steps out to the stars. It's still a ways off, but you know, it, this, this kind of thing is, is, there's always something new and challenging and it's been, actually I've, as, as you mentioned in the beginning, I've, I've stepped down and retired as executive director of the Planetary Society, which has given me a whole opportunity to work with a whole bunch of new, new JPL people 
of your age and younger, uh, were uh, showing me a whole lot of new mission design aspects. I thought we had done all the mission design things uh, a few years ago, but that's the whole, the, the whole uh, excitement of this field is there's always a lot of new things to figure out, new things to be done, questions to be asked. That's the essence of science. So often in the, edu in the education system, teachers get it wrong. They think about science as giving answers. It isn't. It's about posing questions. And every time a scientist comes up with some new discovery, it isn't an answer. It's a posing of a whole set of new questions. And that's what we do. We, we investigate those questions. Well, that is a perfect segue into our question and answer period. Um, so now you guys, I guess, get to ask the questions. And uh, Hi there, Paul Wong. Uh, question for you, Babic, and that is, Every last one of my nerdy, completely pasty friends knows NASA Mohawk guy. It's, it's been imprinted <laughs> into our 2012 when, uh, when a White House press secretary said the U.S. put a SUV-sized piece of machinery on Mars. The first thing was like, I wonder what Mohawk guy did for that. <laughs> but I think our complete fascination with you is the idea that nerds could be, hell yeah, really awesome, really fun. Um, <laughs> And we didn't have to be like these pocket protector 80s stereotypes. <laughs> no, I, offense, I John, no offense, John. <laughs> no offense, John. No offense, Lou. No, everyone up there, you are amazing. But Bob Eck is the one wearing the mohawk, to be fair. Um, the question is this. Have you, have you worn your hair or anything like that knowing that you were going to be some sort of something different, something intentionally not nerdy? Actually, one of the coolest things about our profession is that we are not judged at all uh, really by our appearances as much as really the quality of work we do. I mean, the, the stuff that we do isn't about, uh, you know, I'm wearing this or, you know, this person looks like this or, or whatnot. It's about, you know, do you contribute to this project? Uh, are you willing to work hard? Uh, you know, one of the, th the reasons why it, it, curiosity meant so much to me was it was nine years, I mean, I spent nine years on that project. I, I worked long hours, uh, you know, missed dinners with friends and doing things like that. I'm sure you guys have similar stories uh, in making that sort of thing happen. And I think that's what ultimately I got judged on. It wasn't about uh, my hair as much, uh, although I'm sure, you know, my, my coworkers definitely gave me a hard time when I showed up with a mohawk to work the first time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, ultimately, you know, it takes all types. So we have, you know, people who look all, all different sorts, um, who bring different things to the table. And, I, and actually, I would say that if anything, it, it helps contribute to the success of these missions that, that people bring different perspectives. Uh, I would say that even the Sky Crane, which is, it's, it's audacious, and it's because there are personalities on this project that, that bring that to the table. Um, sometimes, you know, purely professionally, but also oftentimes it's just their personalities are a little bit like that, too. Question over here. Let me, let me, let me uh, add yeah. to that, if I, if I might. Yeah. Um, Anybody who thinks there's a distinction between manned and unmanned missions should just listen to that answer because, you know, the, these unmanned missions or robotic missions, they have a lot of people, individuals associated with them. And, they, and, and many of the, your colleagues in, 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 in the industry and in JPL are individuals with their own personalities. And, uh, you know, I, back in my day, I had a big afro at J, when I was at JPL. <laughs> and, and I remember being asked to have it cut before I went on my first trip to Washington to do a presentation at NASA headquarters. And I refused. And I went all the way up to the director's office for a decision. <laughs> and the director said, 
it doesn't matter what his hair looks like. They're only going to listen to him. And uh, that was the right answer. It, uh, we, we are individuals. You bring up a funny point, though, which is actually that there is a tradition, even at JPL and in the, the space program in general, of having fun with uh, big events. And I mean, for Viking, people actually wore Viking helmets during the launch. Uh, I've seen Spock ears, for example, on, uh, on folks at work. So I think it's, it's just all, it's all in good humor. I mean, we work really hard. And sometimes what you need, actually, is a little sense of levity. It's not just. Um, you know, be serious all the time. And Christian, one thing I would add too is that I thought that Curiosity had particularly good hair. Um, Adam Steltzner, yeah, Adam. who was in charge of the whole entry, descent, and landing thing, he had this great rockabilly pompadour thing. And I mean, within minutes of him being in his first press conference, there was a Twitter feed called Adam Steltzner's hair. So <laughs> we lucked out. And you've kind of danced around this, but maybe you could address the question of manned versus unmanned or why spend the money unmanned. It's a subject I'm, I've, I've been deeply involved with for many years because I've been involved with uh, many of the space policy debates, and it's one I'm actually getting into technically now because of my interest in this interstellar precursors. And what I've ended up concluding is that there's a whole lot of technology evolving which is really changing robotic spaceflight in ways that we're just beginning to predict. Uh, and bringing virtual reality and advanced information processing and biogenetic engineering even into our payloads is in our future. And, and I think many of the aspects of humans versus robots will be lost as we uh, get more and more information from, from other worlds. That said, I think there is the other aspect that you mentioned about Mars, that humans will have to go to Mars for one thing, it's easy compared to anything else. My view is between Mars and the stars, there's nothing for humans. For Mars is, is accessible. It's basically easy to get to. We even have the stuff around to do it now or close to it. Uh, on any reasonable time scale, the rest of the century, certainly humans will get to Mars and determine whether it's possible for us to be a multi-planet species. And we need to do that, because otherwise all our eggs are in the Earth's basket. And, and whatever happens on Earth, uh, we're susceptible to. So I think humans will want to go to Mars. And beyond that, I don't think there's a distinction between manned and unmanned spaceflight. Uh, I wanted to ask something a little closer than Mars, and that was orbiting around our own planet and having the common person be able to actually go into space. So I know there's a lot of work on passenger spaceflight, space hotels, uh, SpaceX's I think, contributing, Georgian Galactic, et cetera. What's your feelings about that, and when do you think that's all going to start to have uh, more of an impact on the common person? We've done a lot of market studies on who are the people that really want to do this, and it's kind of the adventure traveler. It's the guy that will want to climb Mount Everest. It's, it's the one that wants to really go into submarines. It's the one that really wants to do that. And you start looking at what is the cost of getting someone into space, and what are the traits of the adventure tourist? Okay, you know, there's going to be those folks with money, it really doesn't matter, 20 million bucks, no biggie, I'm going to go spend a week at the space station. Great. But that's a relatively small population. When you start talking about what are the real thousands of people, you know, Virgin Galactic is going to charge you um, $200,000 to do a 15-minute um, weightless parabolic arc. Uh, you'll get your astronaut wings because you'll cross the Von Karman line, and that's all great also. But you start wondering... Um, is the adventure tourist at some point going to say, hey, that's a novelty, it's a box I've checked. 
I've met a lot of Everest explorers. I, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro myself. There's a certain, in adventure tourism, there's a certain level of accomplishment that goes along with a challenge. You know, if you could just strap yourself in and become a hero, it kind of cheapens it for yourself. And so I, I, I question these markets where people are going to say, there's going to be people lined up by the thousands to go do this. Now, once you get a, a hotel in space, you can spend some time in weightlessness. Um, and you can get the cost down. I can see people doing that. But I really don't buy into the argument that this is going to be the airline scenario all over again. A lot of people go, it's the nascent thing. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll ignore the fact that all the airlines are losing money. I think that's a good... <laughs> but, but, but airlines also were a quicker way to get to where people were already going. Okay, and so airlines really became prevalent because rather than crossing the ocean over weeks in a steamer, you could do it in hours. And so the air travel industry really blossomed and it never really made a lot of money. Now space, no one really needs to go there. You know, for exploration, for learning about humans, yeah, but you know, are we really going to get the volume? And that's really what's held us back from investing in it. You know, we, we really haven't seen the model where the volume's going to go there and the adventure tourist is really going to give themselves kudos by strapping in and saying, hit the button. Hi, thanks. My name's Ken O'Donnell. Thanks for this panel. It's been really interesting. Um, I want to pick up on the comment about uh, us as being eggs in just one basket, which I think I recognize from a Freeman Dyson quote on the eve of the Apollo mission. And I thought I was going to be hearing more of that tonight. It seems like in answer to the question posed by the title of this, you've been focused on the short and medium term horizons, talking in terms of job creation, ancillary product development, job satisfaction and not talking about what space can do that no other big science can do. It seems like your answers apply just as well to particle accelerators, to deep space laboratories. And I'm wondering, for the longer term prospects of human colonization beyond the Earth, do you not go there because you've found that arguments more than a century out don't get you much traction? Or is that just not really what you think should motivate us to go to space? Politically, your, your statement is correct. They don't get much traction. Uh, political decisions tend, are, are much shorter range. That said, we have had 50 glorious years as if a decision was made to explore the whole solar system and all the planets and all the celestial bodies in it. Nobody ever made exactly that decision 50 years ago, but that's what we've done rather continuously, even with some ups and downs for the past 50 years. I think what you described is a part of the underlying reason that space is so fascinating to the public and space is so important to the public ultimately is that it, it, it represents a chance for the humans to be, uh, to go to another world and to, to have another world and to be a multi-planet species, both psychologically as to what that means in terms of our looking outward and also tangibly as what it might mean in case there's some kind of climate disaster or asteroid disaster or political disaster or, or nuclear disaster or whatever on Earth uh, to, have, uh, to have the idea that we are an unlimited species even with our physical limits here on this planet. So I think that's a powerful force, but I don't think it's a political, dis a political force. It's my view, anyway. I've uh, read where there's been several hundred uh, Earth-like planets discovered outside our solar system. They've been identified. What are the plans to sort of investigate since they're so far away, and what's the likelihood that there is life there 
And um, what do we know about it beyond just the fact that, you know, people think it's a possibility? It's truly an active area. Uh, there's a lot more, a uh, lot of attention. There's several space missions up there. Uh, Kepler has just had its uh, decision made to, uh, NASA's made the decision to extend the life of the Kepler spacecraft, which is making extraordinary thousands of discoveries of candidate solar, extrasolar planets. Uh, there are other missions, both in the United States and Europe, for uh, exoplanet uh, observations. Um, there's the recent, uh, there's, a, there's a new proposal to use the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the next generation space telescope, uh, with a sky shade to, to, uh, to uh, observe extrasolar planets. So I think this is going to be a very big area. It's, it's also, somebody commented uh, in a panel I was on last week, uh, it's an area that brings astrophysicists and planetary scientists together uh, because it, it's exploring uh, the whole makeup of how planetary systems and star systems uh, formed uh, throughout the galaxy, as well as, of course, discovering worlds that we, we observe with the methods of planetary science. So I think it's going to be an extraordinary uh, subject of research and discovery. And there'll be more and more finer level, higher resolution discoveries. But we won't be sending interstellar probes for a long time. Space is big. The, my question is, how do you uh, set your priorities? How do you evaluate the financial value of each mission? Well, of course, in each of these missions, if you spend more, you are probably going to get more of it. But how do you set the limit on each mission? And how do you set the limit on programs? How do you decide to take on this mission or not? How do you evaluate? The NASA budget, everyone thinks it's akin to the DOD budget. It's not. You know, the <laughs> DOD budget's, you know, six, seven hundred billion dollars. NASA budget is 17 and change billion dollars. You know, half a penny of every dollar goes to NASA. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a neat campaign. I think it's, a, it's called a penny for NASA. You know, double NASA's budget and then let the missions roll you know, because of, because of the learning. You don't know what you're going to get out of this stuff, and that's the hard part about it. When you're doing exploration, you really want to cover a broad field and then figure out what you're going to get, but you don't know going in always. So you end up doing your best speculative cut, and you kind of put them in priority order, and then you draw a line where we can afford. We call it a water line. And if it's below the water line, that program drowns. You don't go after it. And of course, <laughs> above the water line, you invest in it. But it's, it's always a trade-off. And the problem is with research, you don't know. I mean, guys, you guys do this all the time. How do you know which sensors to put on your vehicles? It's, it's a challenge. I mean, I know certainly for our mission, we had a bunch of technology demonstrations at the beginning. Some of them worked out. Some of them didn't. Um, and you, you invest in the ones that you, you know, obviously think are going to pan out. We were able to do stuff with this mission that couldn't have been done before. Um, I'm sort of like a firm believer in that old Henry Ford quote, I think, which is like, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Um, <laughs> and I think that's kind of how our job works, though. In some ways, it's not about this is the logical or practical next step. Sometimes it's about what can we do and what will we uncover that, that could be sort of revolutionary or, or game-changing. Well, Lou, you and I were talking earlier about um, the Voyager mission, which is now, you know, 35 years and going strong. And initially, I mean, there were some issues with trying to fund this thing, and you guys had to scale back a little bit. I mean, what, what, 
what happened with that? I mean, did anyone know that we'd, I guess, go out as far as we did? You know, the, uh, the extent of the Voyager mission, the fact that it would be working this time, the fact that it's going out to interstellar space, learning about a whole set of new particles that are new fields and environment that, that we didn't imagine it would reach. I mean, you know, when the decision was made to cancel the Grand Tour mission, it was, we can't afford to build a spacecraft that's going to last that long. We can't afford to build that much smarts into the spacecraft so that it can take care of itself for 10-year mission lifetime. So we're going to limit it to just getting to Saturn, and then that'll be the end of a successful mission. So it's very serendipitous, the kind of discoveries that are made, and the answer to the question of how do you make these decisions, it's messy. It's extremely messy. It's debated all the time. It's like everything else in a democracy when you debate whether this instrument should go on the payload or whether you debate the money should go to NASA versus should go to social welfare programs. All of these, these processes are, are very messy. You can't do any one thing alone. The answer that we always have to go back with is you do everything you can to the best of your ability. Hi, my name is Arik Mars Kosden. My late father was a rocket scientist, so he <laughs> named me Mars. Wow. And, uh, um, I want to know what uh, role patriotism plays uh, in your work, if it's uh, still important that American scientists uh, are, are, are cutting edge and making the most important uh, scientific discoveries. And uh, do you think, um, you know, as China and other nations start, uh, start becoming more cutting edge and, uh, you know, China's sent a man to, uh, up into space, does that... Uh, spur cooperation with, with other countries, or is that going to spur uh, competition like with the, the Cold War? Well, certainly our mission alone had a number of contributions from international scientists and the community at large. Um, and I, don't, I think that's going to have to continue. Some of the challenges that you know, we all as engineers and, and explorers want to accomplish are going to be bigger than you know, the half a penny on the dollar. Uh, and I know for me personally, I grew up you know, kind of multiculturally. Uh, I, there is a sense of, certainly a sense of, of pride that, you know, that our country is able to do this, but at the same time, I think, for me, the overwhelming sense is like, this is a humanities accomplishment. Like, we do this because it means something to mankind, not because it necessarily just means something to the United States. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think that the, the future of this is more international collaboration, and I'm sure you, you probably can speak more to that, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, this is going to have to be an international thing, and this is something that we, no one nation should afford. You know, I was a actually visiting, I, I'm, my parents are from Finland, so I was visiting my relatives when Apollo 11 moon landing happened, and it was pretty amazing being in another country. And, you know, you, first you go, boy, I'm an American, you know, ooh, ooh, we did it. But then all of a sudden you start realizing you're in another country. It's like, wow, we're humans. We did it. I mean, the nationality goes away. So, you know, but the flip side is if we give up and cede the investment to that, it becomes an economic problem. Most of the studies show that for every dollar we spend on this kind of research, we get seven or eight dollars back on the gross domestic product. And so it has a real multiplying factor just because of the way it, it permeates other industries. It's akin to, you know, we're in an automotive museum right now, but car racing actually brings technology into the cars that we drive on the streets today. In the same way, the kind of investment we do, doing hard things, stuff that hasn't been done before, it tends to permeate and it opens up new doors in other areas. So economically, I think it's an imperative we keep investing. But in reality, before we start making interstellar spaceships, that's going to have to be a human team effort.
Let me uh, use a baseball analogy because I like to use them for everything. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that is uh, we're, we're on a team. I want the third baseman. I'm the shortstop. I want the third baseman to be the best he can be, but I want to be better than him. I really have worked a lot with the Russian programs over the years. I've worked with the Japanese closely, Europeans some. I want them to really be good and succeed. I want China to have a great space program, but I want ours to be better. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's, it's not taking away from anything else. I think we all have to contribute into this. I think the points that, that certainly the grand ambitions we have will require that. But of course, we want our individual effort, you want to be the best on your team, even though you're working with a whole bunch of guys that, that are, you also want to be uh, great at their, their jobs. And I think we all want that, but the same thing applies with uh, uh, working on missions like the Cassini mission. We want uh, the Europeans to do very, very well, and it goes, it goes out from there. What can I do in the future to help you or work with you uh, and you know, you know, help you achieve your goal, you know, our mutual goals? And also, uh, just kind of a pipe dream, I've been reading a lot of uh, Isaac Asimov lately. Uh, what can we do to like, kind of make uh, ion drives, warp drives, you know, things that uh, make us go faster than the speed of light? Well, I will actually just note one thing. We do have an ion engine on the Dawn spacecraft, um, which is uh, going from the giant asteroid Vesta to the giant asteroid series. And I think they named it because it was whether it was in Star Trek or Star Wars, but it was, you know, an inspiration to them, and it's become this really flexible system where there, it's just the, the push against these xenon ions that kind of gets it to move through space. So yeah, from a policy point, <laughs> I think it's really important to say that we need to have some continuity. If you start looking back at what NASA's done over the last 20 years, and you guys can't say this because you work for NASA, but, um, <laughs> and, but there was a recent National Science Foundation report that talked about this. There's been about $22 billion of starts and stops where we just didn't take the project through any kind of completion where we could totally harvest what we were going to learn from it. And those billions of dollars could have been easily spent bringing something past the goal line where even if it was a catastrophic failure, we would have learned a lot more than just putting it in a box and going, gee, I wonder how that would have worked. And so from a policy viewpoint, we really need to have some kind of a long-term policy that says we're going to keep pushing ourselves. We're going to have enough work going out there so that the scientists can keep bending their pick on those hard things that are going to make us learn. But the starts and stops, I think, are the things that we just need to eliminate. And uh, in addition to reading, you know, I'd say write a lot. Write, get published, get it into things. Keep analyzing uh, all of these issues and write about them because you're, you're engaged in them. Uh, and we need more communication on it, whether it be on the internet, whether it be in print media, whether it be books and articles and everything. I think we need more people writing about these subjects. I mean, that's one of the nice things about this forum, too, because there's a lot of written material that comes out of it on the, on the website, uh, which is very good. As far as your other question about the, uh, what can we do about wormholes? Um, uh, be skeptical. <laughs> That's another part of uh, science and engineering. Is those, yeah, keep making progress, but 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 be skeptical about the, those things that we uh, uh, have more trouble doing. Well, actually, at one point, because you brought it up earlier, uh, is also a counter to being skeptical. Um, be open-minded. Uh, nuclear thermal propulsion was an idea that's been around for a long time, and because it has the word nuclear in it, people get scared often. It's actually 
relatively safe. Uh, but it was so promising, and I think that's that's one of the things is that you know, be aware. Don't don't you know, don't be scared of sometimes when things sound complex or whatever uh, or scary that they actually are. You know, investigate for yourself, um, or you know, go read somebody's blog who understands it better. But I, I think that's one of the things that we have to understand too is that sometimes, uh, you know, being open to new ideas or concepts. Uh, and I'll, I'll bring it back to uh, curiosity with the sky crane. Like you know, somebody had to propose that the first time, and it and it, caught, it probably got laughed at a little bit too. Um, <laughs> but you know, that that sort of thing is actually really important. Yeah, I don't mind being uh, contradictory about that, uh, contradicted about that, because uh, I agree, open open minded and skeptic skeptical at the same time. You know, curiosity killed the cat. Seek and <laughs> you shall find. <laughs> Both are right. Uh, my name is Nick Gillett. Um, if you go back a few hundred years, you'll find that um, similar exploration was being done by a guy called Captain Cook. Um, and the two of the space shuttles were named after his ships, Discovery and Endeavour. Um, and he did scientific missions, but he was also looking for resources. He was also looking to how to open up trade routes and find more um, trade, you know, more... Uh, as I say, resources, whether it be new materials or, or sources of materials or even products for people to trade with, and he traded with the people he found. Is Curiosity looking for more than just science? Is it looking for potential resources on Mars um, that somebody might be able to make money out of in the long term? I mean, we're looking specifically at the question of habitability, and certainly that plays into whether humans could live and how easy it would be for humans to live on Mars. Uh, but there are definitely startup companies like Planetary Resources who, whose you know, kind of goal is to specifically look for asteroids or other uh, bodies that might contain resources. I mean, I'm sure the women are excited that we announced that we found a planet that was mostly diamonds. So I think that was kind of awesome. I know I had some friends who asked about that. Uh, there, are, there are definitely people who are looking at that. And I think you know, the question is, you know, what, where, where does that lie in terms of uh, priorities in terms of what resources do we need and where will we find them and uh, profitability. You know, a, a company like Planetary Resources thinks there's a there's a viable industry that they can be built around looking for these resources that the, the Earth needs or that are about you know precious in some way and uh, and bringing them back. Thank you so much. Thank you.